Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Eamon Carey, Managing Director of Techstars London. Techstars is a global seed accelerator and worldwide network that has helped entrepreneurs succeed and is currently in over 150 countries worldwide. Some of their alumni include ClassPass, PillPack, and Contently. He was previously Managing Director at Techstars Connection in partnership with AB InBev in New York and has been a long-term mentor, advisor, and angel investor in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and the U.S. In this episode, we discuss London's startup ecosystem, Eamon's due diligence process, and consumer trends that he has seen in Europe and Asia. I had a blast time with Eamon and learned so much. So without further ado, here's Eamon. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. How are you? An absolute pleasure to be here, Mike. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Excited to have this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. What attracted you to startups, entrepreneurship, and then move to the other side of the table and become an investor? So I was, I was really lucky in that I, well, I had very patient parents, but also my, uh, my dad used me as an excuse to buy stuff that he kind of wanted. And so when I was about, I think, seven or eight, he said, oh, you know, actually having a computer would be helpful for math and various different things for Eamon in school. And so he bought this Sinclair Spectrum computer with 48K of, of raw power. Um, and that was what I learned how to write code on. Back then you could buy magazines, like this is the, the, the mid-1980s. So you could buy these magazines with the code uh, in them and you would effectively type it out, copy it out, execute it and play games and I learned kind of if you change bits of the code it would change colors on the screen or it would change the speed of the aliens coming down and space invaders or uh, whatever else and so was always really into computers continued that through kind of Ataris and Amigas and PCs and into the the internet era and was you know always spending a, a ton of time online on IRC on all of these kind of different places as I as I grew up and so had this real passion for what was happening online uh, I then went and, and studied journalism in college and, and became a, a journalist and you know, it was kind of looking at what was happening in the media industry and looking at what was happening with the way that people were consuming content and engaging with different things and um, was starting to think a little bit more about how I could get more involved in that. And, and, and I had a bunch of friends who were working for big ad agencies and PR agencies and brands, and they were all saying, hey, this internet thing is interesting. We need to you know, put more money into it. This was kind of like 99, uh, 98, 99, 2000 and, and 2001 and beyond. Um, and so I started thinking kind of, of, of different business ideas. And, and I, I vividly remember it. I was in Korea, uh, I think in 2003 or 2004, uh, sitting on a subway, uh, going to meet a couple of friends of mine who were teaching out there. And I saw this guy sat next to me. And this was back when I had a Nokia phone where you had to kind of tap it a thousand times to send a message. This guy takes out this little black uh, rectangle uh, and starts watching a Spider-Man movie on it. And it was like a kind of you know mind explosion of, holy shit, like this is going to be the default way that people are going to consume everything. Like, you know, imagine having a you know computer in your pocket all the time. And so I started digging into mobile a bit more and, you know, f found some really interesting opportunities, started talking again to those friends who were working for brands and, and at a certain point thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to quit and, and, and go and do stuff on the, on the internet. And this is obviously post, post, the, the initial crash in, in, in kind of 2000, 2001. So we, we started the company in, I think, 2000, uh, back into four, started five, um, and just started doing stuff with big brands, like building, you know, doing everything from podcasts and mobile video to strategy to J2ME mobile games, all of these different things. But it was that real 
passion for what was happening online, I think a real passion for the technology and the kind of enabling layer that mobile was and, and then that understanding of, of content. And so was lucky enough to kind of travel the world and, and, and grow that, that company and work with some, some great people. And, you know, that I think, and, and then subsequently started a, a games company with some friends and, and kind of had a, a good time doing that as well. And, and so the experiences and the successes that we had with those two businesses, as well as the extreme failure that I had with a, a third education business, you know, I think that gave me a lot of empathy and understanding for what that founder journey is like and so as I was kind of thinking about what to do next and starting to kind of you know maybe do some angel investing and and, and starting to look at uh, different companies and different opportunities in kind of 20 you know 13 20 2014 angel investing to me seemed like something really interesting to do and, and it was a great way to work with founders to work with people who were smarter than I was who had better ideas than the ones that, that I was having at the time and, and hopefully give them you know some of the experiences that I'd had and, and kind of tell them some of the mistakes that I made along the way and when I first met the folks from from Techstars when they came to Europe at the, the back end of 2012 or the start of 2013 that whole kind of mentorship driven approach that they had and that kind of give first model that they had and, and motto that they had was something that really resonated because I can still remember you know, the people that, that sat with me for 10 or 15 minutes in, in 2005 going, hey, let's have a cup of coffee. Don't sign this contract or you don't want to hire someone in this way or you need to know what a vesting schedule is. You know, people who really gave me advice that made a huge difference. And, you know, the ability to be able to, to give some of that back was, was something that was really important for me and continues to, to be important for me as I invest in companies and join boards and, you know, try and help them through some of the mistakes so that they can go and make a whole bunch of new mistakes and then come back and tell me and then hopefully I can put that into action for another generation of companies. I'd imagine that uh, as a founder, you had lots of learnings. What were some examples of, of that empathy for, uh, for founders on the other side as an investor? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding that there is in a lot of founders' brains this kind of linear path that they go on, um, you know, where it's like, you know, success begets success and you raise money and you go and everything is, is you know, it's not necessarily easy street, but it's it's also kind of a, an understandable process that, that, that companies go through. And the reality is obviously it's, it's kind of anything but that. And so being able to sit with them and go, look, they're, you know, I can't remember who said it years ago that, you know, every entrepreneur exists in a state of either total ecstasy or total despair. Uh, and there's very rarely kind of a, a middle ground. I think being able to sit with them and go, look, for a lot of founders, actually, what they need to hear is this is actually normal. You know, it's, it is normal to be stressed out. It is normal. I mean, I, you know, I can probably draw you a, a map of the ceiling in my house from uh, when I was running a company because you'd be lying awake at night sometimes going, am I going to make payroll like have we messed things up with this contract is this money going to come through is this person going to you know stiff us on, on on money all of these kind of different things that, that you worry about and so being able to sit with founders and, and talk them through those processes and kind of talk them through some of the, the steps that I took or some of the conversations I had and, and also I think to be able to talk to them about the importance of being open and, and honest which is you know it's not always an easy thing for a founder to do with an investor because you know, sometimes they're thinking about, well, you know, is, is this going to affect my next round of funding or, you know, the, the follow on check or the bridge round this person might do. But, you know, as I say to companies all the time, you know, I, I, I can't help with 100 percent of the things that I don't know about. Um, and, and the more that I know that things are not going well, the more that I can at least have a conversation or, you know, try to get involved, try to help out. And I think, you know, that's the other big thing that I try and uh, talk to companies about is the importance of having these conversations, maybe not even, you know, and it's, it's sometimes why having a co-founder is really helpful that, that you can have, 
you know, frank conversations about what's happening within your business, you know, whether it be with your board, whether it be with your mentors, with your advisors, or, or, or with, you know, some members of, of your team. But uh, I think that openness and transparency is really important. And also, I think one of the really nice things about the, the network that we have at, at Techstars, both just the 10 companies that go through each program, but also the, the wider community of, of now close to 2,000 companies that we've invested in, is that there's thousands of founders who are in our network who are going through the same thing or who have gone through the same thing and been able to go, oh yeah, it's not that I'm a bad CEO or it's not that I'm making poor decisions, it's just this happens and sometimes there's bumps in the road before there's there's smooth sailing or sometimes there's a lot of bumps in the road before you get there. And I think those conversations are really important for people to have and really important for us as investors to facilitate, particularly you know, at, at a very early stage where every decision that a, a company makes or that a, a founding team makes feels pretty existential, um, you know, and, and, and one misstep can be the difference between, um, you know, a spectacular success and, uh, and something very, very different. I think it's also important, as you highlighted as an investor, being very clear with founders in terms of what your actual strengths and weaknesses are as an investor. Yeah, like I'm, I'm good at the like I'm good at the zero to one bit, right? The first year to well, the first two years probably of a of a company's life, I can I can help with lots of things, and and I'm you know well hopefully uh, at least reasonably useful. But you know when when companies get to the stage that they're doing. CDE growth rounds, you know, prepping for IPO, like I will absolutely be standing on the sidelines cheering them on and I'm happy to go for breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks with the, the founders and, and have conversations. But there are people who are far smarter and far more versed in, in, in those sections of a company's life cycle than I am. And I, I think it's been interesting that, to watch that evolve over time and to watch companies realize that that's not just true for your investors and your board members and your advisors. It's also true that, you know, there, there are some people you know, who are, who are execs who are good for the kind of zero to one bit. And there are a bunch of other people who are good for the, the kind of one to end bit. And so I think understanding that and being honest and, and, you know, being able to say to companies at a certain point, Hey, you probably don't need me on your board anymore. You need someone who understands, you know, these processes is, is, is a healthy thing for us and, and a healthy thing for companies. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about that zero to one bit in your due diligence process by assessing at Techstars and assessing startups and what to invest in for your next cohorts. What types of qualities do you look for in founders? Cause at the zero to one stage, there's not a ton of data to go on. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we kind of boil things down to a a pretty simple way of, of, of thinking about things, uh, you know, when we're looking at a companies from a Techstars perspective, you know, we, we always say to people, we look for six things and it's team, 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 market, traction, idea. Um, and so for me, like the, the, the who and the, the why behind a business is frequently far more interesting at the stage that we're getting in at than the, the what that they're actually building. You know, I think Jay mentioned it on a previous podcast, you know, a, a bunch of companies that go through Techstars programs will finish the program doing something either slightly or radically different to what they started doing the uh, program with. And so, you know, that focus on team and resilience and passion and coachability and, you know, the, the, the ability to kind of digest large volumes of information from the hundred plus mentors that they'll meet in, in, in month one of the, the program is, is incredibly important. I think you want, you know, people who've got real, passion for what they're doing. Like if I, if I look at the, you know, consumer investments that I've made over the years, a bunch of the founders in my view would be, you know, effectively the, the personification of the brand that they're building, you know, and, and they live and breathe that brand in, in a whole bunch of, of different ways. And when you meet people like that, you can actually, in many cases, you know, almost 
feel the energy or almost see the energy fizzing off them. And, and that, you know, excitement and passion is something that gets me really excited because then I start going, oh, okay, actually, you know, with the right structure and the right people and the right supporters around this person, they can literally kind of, you know, create, create magic. So I think that as we kind of think about companies is, is, is probably the, the most important thing. And then of course you want to, you know, be investing in markets that are maybe small, but growing where there's some unique advantage that the company has or a, a, a big market that's ripe for disruption or a market where there's, you know, a lot of incumbents that you want to come in and kind of pull the rug out from under. And obviously then kind of the, the, there, there needs to be some degree of momentum. I think what we're, really good at doing is taking companies where they're already accelerating and the, the kind of foot is already on the gas and, and kind of being able to to add to that and, and help them get you know even further along and help them do more faster um, and so looking for companies and that doesn't necessarily have to be that they're doing hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands in in sales or revenue or have you know hundreds of thousands of users if they're a consumer app um, but it does mean that they need to be able to show me that you know so, something is happening and I, I love you know getting investor updates from from companies every week or every month where you're just seeing even without you know maybe access to capital or access to a, a network or access to uh, the support that, that, that they'll get on a, a Techstars program or from from other investors I love to see that there's something happening and that there's some momentum because that then you kind of go okay we can we can help with this and then you know frequently the, the kind of as I say the idea is almost the least important thing in in, in some cases because if you've got the you know, the right people and the, the right support network around them, you know, if you can kind of guide them through maybe one or two pivots or, or help them kind of understand that a very small change to the business or business model, you know, might make a very material difference. Um, you know, once you, once you have those things in place, it, it, it helps. And I think as you get further along, of course, you can look at, you know, NPS and, and, you know, retention rates and engagement rates and all of these kind of different things. But I think for me, fundamentally, it's a, you know, the, the stage that we're investing in, it's a, it's a people business. And so making sure that, we're backing the right people and, and making sure that the 10 companies in the batch that are going through together are going to be the right mix of people to be able to support one another as well, um, I think is, is hugely important. And then the, the other big thing that I kind of look for is, you know, what's the, what's the insight or what's the customer understanding or what's the kind of unique attribute that this founder or this team has that's, that's going to allow them to, you know, potentially build a wedge into the, the market that they're going after. And, and I love finding companies that are kind of solving problems that they really faced uh, themselves. And, and that's where that kind of passion and engagement and interest comes from. You kept repeating, you know, the company has to be showing that something's happening, right? I just wanted to know what you think about product market fit when it comes to consumer. I had another investor said that in, com that, that in terms of consumer, you kind of know it when you see it. Um, it's it's a hard thing to explain. Uh, is that so finding like product market fit? Is that is that just the thing about in terms of like your gut reaction? Or uh, I know that consumers a very you know broad uh, category uh, area. But what are maybe some metrics that you might that that you might be thinking about to see if this is something real? Well, I, I look for um, so so part of it is is gut, which is probably not the, the necessarily always the, the best way to to invest, and and part of it is pattern recognition, having kind of looked at at companies in in similar sectors and spaces before. I think in the absence of kind of hard metrics that you can look at, and you know, like those NPS scores or like those. Um, you know, retention rates over a, a six or nine or 12 month period, you know, I look for things like customer love. And so I give an example, we invested in a, um, uh, a couple of companies uh, this year where 
throughout the entire process as they were talking to me. Um, the updates that I was getting was showing me, you know, emails and messages and stuff that they were getting from their consumers via their help desk. And then if I would look them up on, you know, Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else, like the outpouring of support and engagement and everything else is 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 huge, right? And and so we invested in a company called On, which is um, you know, a, a company that kind of reshapes how, how women experience their, their menstrual cycle. And so they um, give them access to organic period products, uh, CBD oil, all sorts of, of different things like that. And, and if you look at the love that they were getting back from the community that they had already built, you know, you could see real passion and real uh, engagement with the product. And they were seeing kind of 60, 70 percent of their user growth was coming from word of mouth and, and you know, people telling their friends and telling their friends, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you start looking, looking at that, you know, th that is even if the, the company only has hundreds or, you know, early thousands of, of subscribers or customers, that's something that you can really tangibly see. The same was true when I, I looked at uh, the guys from, from Kenko um, last year, which is kind of making fruit and vegetables more accessible to consumers. So they have these powdered um, smoothie mixes that you mix in with water or milk and shake them up and, and, and have a, uh, a juice or a smoothie or a milkshake. And again, when we were talking to them uh, about 18 months ago now, you could see the, the number of people posting about the product on Instagram, the number of people that were saying that this changed their lives. You know, it was, it was incredible. And when you see that organic growth, when you see that real outpouring of love from customers and you think, okay, if we could, as I said earlier, like kind of wrap a little bit of a layer of support around this and, and, and wrap the right people around this, you know, you can kind of take that to a much bigger audience and, and, and look at ways of kind of replicating that to, to thousands, tens of thousands or, um, or millions of, of consumers. So I think those are, you know, things that, that you can look at in a relatively tangible way um, without necessarily having to kind of look at you know, whatever Google Analytics or, or, or anything a little bit more hardcore that I think starts to kick in more when you're at that full product market fit stage and you think, okay, now the application of some paid media or distribution channels or partnerships might help us really kind of accelerate growth. But I think in the early stages, you need to look for that, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of customers who are absolutely in love with the product and who are absolutely in love with the, the team that have brought that product to life. And I think in many of the cases and companies that I've been lucky enough to invest in, that's been the case. And that's been really tangible as we've dug into them a little bit. Let's say you've got 11,000 or 10,000 followers on Instagram and, you know, 2000 of them are liking every post that a company puts out like that that's a pretty material um gaming of the the algorithm and and again it just shows how often people you know it's it, it is by no means a, a scientific measure like no one is ever going to put it in an algorithm and, and win a nobel prize for it but you're looking for all of these little micro signals to support a little bit of what your gut is telling you right Right. What's different and exciting to you about London's ecosystem, maybe compared to the Bay Area in New York, since a lot of the investors that we've had on the show are from uh, a live in the Bay Area or New York City? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, I really miss living in, in New York. I, I spent a, a, a wonderful time over there running the Techstars Connection program with, uh, with AD InBev and, and loved every minute of it. And, that, you know, there's a real dynamism uh, in the city and a, a pace of Deal making that uh, is is kind of unrivaled anywhere else in in the world, but I think there's there's something quite unique about about London um, in that a I think if you look at you know concentration of, of capital and, and fundraising you know certainly in the the kind of Western world it's it's probably you know San Francisco New York and and then I think you know London is is probably in certainly third or, or fourth place in terms of 
um, the volume of, of capital being invested into, into early stage and, and mid stage kind of tech companies. So there's lots and lots of, of capital here and not just uh, European capital, but increasingly US funds are starting to, uh, to invest in companies here, both at, at kind of pre-seed, seed and, and series A. In fact, Kenko, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Nextview Ventures and Max and a couple of others invested in, in their round. Uh, Banjo Robinson, who went through the most recent Techstars London program, had a uh, collaborative fund and, and Sesame Street's uh, venture arm invest in, in their round. So we're seeing activity coming in from the US and we're seeing capital coming in from, from China, uh, Japan and other markets. So lots and lots of access to capital across all of the, the different stages. There's access to, to talent, you know, some of the best uh, universities in the um, in the world in the you know greater London area, but also even as you go out into you know Manchester, Edinburgh, uh, even across the water into into Ireland, into Dublin, there's some you know incredible talent coming out across um, biotech, you know machine learning, computer vision, lots and lots of different areas, and and I think the university and tech transfer ecosystem has gotten a lot stronger. And and then I think one of the other big things is if you think companies need capital, talent, and and kind of partners or, or, or clients um you know in in the oil and gas industry you can go and meet bp and shell and 20 minutes later you can go to the heart of the financial and insurance industry and meet every bank and insurance company you want to and, and then get on a tube and 20 minutes later be at the heart of the kind of european middle east and, and to a certain extent even part of the asian uh, marketing and advertising industry and you know so if you look at all of these big uh, categories whether it be automotive or CPG or advertising or insurance or finance or oil and gas or energy or any of these other things, you know, a lot of very large companies and corporates have substantial presences, headquarters and, and operations here. And so, you know, I think it's, it's relatively unique in the ability to access all of these very senior decision makers across a range of industries uh, in a way that we haven't, you know, you, you don't necessarily see in a lot of other cities you know so some cities are obviously a lot better at some things than than others um but i think london in terms of just density and proximity of of people and industries is 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 quite unique and i think that kind of creates its own gravity and its own excitement and and i think then allied to that is there are now companies like transferwise and and revolut and monzo and you know, many others that are that are at that kind of, you know, whatever unicorn status we've had kind of DeepMind and, and Darktrace and, um, you know, lots of other companies in the AI world that have gone on to become hugely uh, successful. And so I think there are role models here now and there are kind of mentors and advisors and angel investors in the community who have come out of those companies uh, and are starting to kind of reinvest into the into the ecosystem, which I think is, is kind of what this part of the world has been lacking for a long time. And so you kind of take all of those elements and put them together and you kind of go, well, actually, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a, a secret sauce here. And, and then you add that to the fact that it takes six hours to get to New York from, from here, which is kind of the same as from San Francisco to New York, um, you know, three hours in, in to the east, you can be in pretty much any uh, capital city in, in Europe and, and touch, you know, a little bit of, of North Africa. If you're willing to go six hours to the east and you're, you're covering Turkey and a big chunk of the Middle East. So, you know, you're talking about a substantial portion of global GDP being within a, a six-hour flight of, of this city, um, so you know that that again kind of just adds a little bit to the the allure of the uh, of the city, or at least that's that's the uh, that's my, my tourist advertisement for it at, at a minimum. I appreciate the commercial. I wanted to talk a little bit about Brexit. Has this changed how you think about investing at all? There was a really 
pretty funny uh, cartoon that was doing the rounds on, on Twitter the other day where it was kind of, you know, um, the British, it's 2192. The British Prime Minister has come to Brussels to ask for a symbolic extension to Brexit. No one even knows why he's doing this or where the tradition comes from, and yet it persists. Like, I think the, the the Brexit thing is is I mean it's it's frustrating in that it, there has it has been dragged out for for quite a long time with with very little clear uh, picture in terms of, of where we're going to go. Maybe this this election on December twelfth is is going to get uh, get us somewhat closer to an answer. And certainly when it when it happens, when the the result of the the vote was announced, I did kind of have slightly gloomier thoughts about uh, you know the prospects for the not just the, the technology industry but the wider economy um, but the reality is actually it, it seems to have not made as big an impact as as anyone thought it would I mean there was certainly a lot of talk of oh all of these banks and big companies and everyone else is going to move out of London they're all going to be in Frankfurt or Paris or Dublin etc 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 and that that hasn't really happened. I mean, obviously, some jobs have moved, some jobs will continue to move, but that's kind of the, the nature of business. Um, if anything, we've seen more new funds come to market since the Brexit vote was was announced, and even ones that started uh, raising for seed funds, Series A funds, and, and growth funds way after the, the, the vote was announced. Um, so it hasn't made a huge difference. And I think the other big thing that we've seen happen is, as investors and as companies, frankly, have gotten more comfortable with remote working. Um, the kind of talent challenge that everyone assumed that we would have of, oh, maybe we won't be able to attract people to move to London because visas might be a little bit more difficult for folks to get. Actually, the solution to that has been remote working. And so if I look at, you know, companies like Let's Enhance that I invested in uh, last year, you know, they have a sales operation. The CEO is based here and, and sometimes in, in San Francisco. And then their, you know, machine learning research engineering team, everyone else is based in Kiev. And so it's a, you know, two, two and a half hour flight for them to go between. They're, they're roughly in the same time zone. So communication on Slack and, and, and Skype and Zoom and everything else is, is pretty straightforward. So I think it has had a far lesser impact than I was concerned that it would have pretty early on. Um, and certainly there, there has been no slowdown in the, the pace of investment into um, into companies. Like great companies are still getting capital. And as I said, like, you know, money from the US, money from Asia, money from lots of different places are, are still seeking out great businesses here. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought up remote working. How do you think about remote working at the uh, at the very early stages? You know, if a company were to be accepted into, or you were uh, conducting your due diligence in a company that maybe the founding team or uh, was was all remote, how would you how would you feel about that? I think a lot of that, you know, the the kind of due diligence process for that company would probably be a lot more about the you know, almost looking at their calendar and the the structure of how they communicate and how they kind of keep in touch with with one another. Like I'm I'm pretty comfortable with the idea of of remote working so long as people have some um, systematic processes or, or structures in place that allow them to actually understand what everyone else in the team is doing. I mean, I think where I've seen remote working uh, not work for companies in the past is where everyone feels like they're kind of paddling their own canoe and frequently they're all paddling them in different directions and it's a bit higgledy-piggledy and it leads to uh, frustration and annoyance and grievances and all of these other things. Whereas I think if you sit with a company and they go, oh, okay, actually, you know, we have these stand-ups organized and we're using these Gantt charts or we're using product plan or we're using Asana or we're using Trello or, you know, Notion or whatever the, the tool is to kind of, you know, so that everyone understands what's what's going on everywhere else. I think that is a, is a huge... Uh, 
part of the solution. I think then if you look at, you know, some of the companies that we have invested in where the team is maybe not fully remote, but largely remote, you know, they do a pretty good job of either, you know, quarterly um, or, or more often, depending on, on how much money they have in, in the bank or how remote they are, uh, of trying to get everyone together so that there is this feeling that you're you're not just this kind of amorphous blob of community that exists on Slack, but actually, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 uh, real people who all work for the same company. And so I think you have to be very systematic about how you manage that communications process and manage, you know, both internal and, and, and external communications as a remote team. Um, and that is something that I would dig in on. But, you know, we've had it work in, in the most extreme circumstances. You know, we had a a company called 42 Maru who did the program last year where you know the CEO, uh, their chief strategy officer and briefly their CTO were, were in um, London. They had another 30 engineers working in, in Seoul, South Korea um, with a fairly substantial time gap in between the two and, and some other people working elsewhere. And so, you know, they were able to manage that process, you know, with a lot of very early morning and occasionally late night uh, telephone calls. But because they had those systems and structures in place, they could do it. And so I think if I look at companies where the geographical distance isn't so vast, it is solvable. I mean, even Kenko, um, who I mentioned earlier, you know, their uh, production ops, everything else happens in Lisbon. Um, you know, one of the co-founders is based between Lisbon, London and, and New York, as, as indeed is, is the other, actually. And so, you know, th they're spread out around the world and, and, and the company still runs like clockwork because I think they have those processes in place. And, you know, I mean, even Techstars is pretty distributed. I mean, I think we, we did the numbers at our last all hands is like, you know, close to 300 people working in nearly 40 countries uh, around the world. So we kind of, uh, it would be a bit rich if I said, oh no, we can't do remote companies when, you know, someone could look at it and go, well, you have staff in Finland and Estonia and the UK and Ireland and, you know, Colombia and all of these kind of different places. So I think it's doable, but it, 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 it certainly adds a little bit of tension and friction potentially, but you know, it's a, it's a solvable problem. Do you think that remote working is maybe more common amongst maybe European founded companies just because uh, you have uh, these different smaller countries as compared to the US, which is just one, you know, giant large country? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's probably a little bit more common. Although, we're, you know, even if I talk to some of my colleagues in the US, you can start to see people going, well, if I'm building a company, do I have to have my entire engineering team in the Bay Area? Or do I have to have my entire sales team in New York? Because it's, it becomes yeah, pretty, pretty pricey and pretty competitive uh, very quickly. And, you know, I mean, that's starting to happen in London, right? You've got Facebook and Google and Amazon and, you know, lots and lots of other companies with, you know, centers of excellence and, and engineering hubs here. And, and they're obviously competing for talent. Um, but also, I think it is because of that time zone or the, 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 the flight time thing that I mentioned, you can start a company in Dublin and if you get up at seven o'clock in the morning, you can be taking your first meeting in London at, at 10 a.m. You know, if you're in Paris, you can, in fact, you can literally take the train from Paris to London uh, to do a meeting. You know, if you're in Berlin, it's a 90 minute flight. If you're in Kiev, it's a two and a half hour flight. So I think it's quite natural for companies to, to start elsewhere in Europe to maybe grow in their home market. Um, and then to kind of think about, okay, well, London is maybe the first big international market that you'll you know, kind of earn, earn, you know, earn your spurs in, and then you'll maybe think about the US or, or another market. So I think that kind of geographical proximity probably makes it a lot easier for companies to do remote working because, you know, realistically, if you're, if the, you know, if, if the time difference is one hour or, or, or two hours, it's, it's negligible enough that you can actually, you know, persistently be in touch with people during the day versus, 
you know, maybe greater um, greater geographical spreads and, um, you know, greater time differences as well. Those are all great points. We talked earlier before the show about how you're kind of a globetrotter. Uh, Techstars in London, you source deals for uh, Zeroth, which is a Hong Kong accelerator. How do you think about consumer trends globally and, you know, in different markets and how consumer companies are expanding to different markets? I think it's been it's been interesting to watch it, right? Like I think there is a greater level of of comfort um, with new consumer brands in the U.S. I think people are are quicker to um, adopt new brands and to to get kind of familiar with them. And I think part of that is actually if you look at a lot of the the big consumer brands in the U.S., they have been quite fast to do kind of brand advertising rather than just pure direct response kind of paid media stuff. They have been quite good about getting, you know, posters on subways or advertisements on TV or any of these things. So I think there's more comfort with that market in in, in the US. I think it's still, it's it's growing. Um, and I think you're starting to see kind of, you know, the, particularly in the financial sector, you know, companies like Monzo and Revolut have, have really kind of captured a huge amount of, of market share as, as kind of challenger banks and, and TransferWise and others um, over the last couple of years. And, and part of that has been word of mouth. Part of that has been a growing kind of uh, comfort with these new fintech challenger banks and brands that are coming out. And so I think as people get more comfortable with it, you'll start to see, and which is what we are seeing, more and more kind of consumer brands coming through in um, in the European market. I think, you know, when we, I, I was in Japan a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, if you look there, they're, they're still maybe a little bit, I mean, obviously they have their own indigenous consumer brands that are that are quite big, but, you know, the volume of people actually starting um, consumer companies or, or direct-to-consumer subscription companies is obviously, it's it's far smaller uh, than we see in, uh, in, in this part of the world. So there's a lot to do with kind of acceptance rates. But then if you look at, you know, markets like, Indonesia or Bangladesh or Vietnam, you'll see loads and loads of people starting uh, direct-to-consumer brands. You'll see lots and lots of people starting companies in, in this sector because a lot of those countries will, frankly, largely be ignored by you know bigger players or more heavily funded players in Europe and the US because they'll be seen as being maybe too small at times or, or too far away or too difficult from a, a linguistic perspective. So, you know, it's it's interesting to watch it. You know, we've historically in, in Europe, companies would you know, maybe they would launch in their home market. They, their first big test bed then would be the UK, and then they would look at, at, at going straight to the to the US, or maybe they would just go straight to the US. We're seeing more and more companies going. Oh, actually, there are opportunities to the to the east. We are seeing more investors coming in from um, China, India, Japan, other markets in in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and now, you know, not every company by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly we're seeing one or two out of every uh, 10 consumer companies that we invest in kind of going, oh, actually, there might be something that we can do a little bit further afield. And, and certainly from what we've seen and what I've experienced with brands and organizations and partners in, in, in the Asian market, you know, there's a huge appetite uh, for companies that want to expand out of the UK and out of the US into into those markets and a huge push that can be done from a, a partnerships perspective, from an awareness raising perspective, from a you know user acquisition perspective and uh, from a localization perspective, obviously, as well. So I think, um, you know, the, the, the world is, is kind of full of a bunch of really interesting opportunities at the moment. And, and that's one of the challenges for companies that exist as well is, you know, you have this whole smorgasbord of, of choice um you know and, and and if you make the wrong step it can be a you know pretty big mistake to make but um you know being able to kind of think about coherently which market you're going to go into you know it's probably the first time in a very long time that people have had the luxury of being able to even think like that 
what consumer verticals are you right now focused on or excited about that you think are ripe for expansion in Asian markets that are European companies? I mean, I think food, uh, there's, there's a, you know, regardless of, of what, how we produce it or how we consume it or what we consume um, or what we cook it on or, you know, any of these different things. I think the whole, if you kind of think about the scale of the opportunity, like we all to, to a greater or lesser extent have to eat twice or, or, or three times a, a day. Um, so I think that opportunity is, is fairly substantial, particularly as you look at kind of, you know, I'm on the board of a company called Click and Grow, which is kind of uh, indoor farming, allowing people to grow uh, vegetables and herbs and more um, in their home and, and, you know, getting to a point where they can actually grow a, a sufficient amount to, to feed themselves. Um, you know, companies like that in a lot of uh, Asian markets and in Middle Eastern markets, there are huge opportunities. We've, we've seen the same with, with Kenko, giving people access to those kind of five-a-day fruit and vegetables, um, you know, using these kind of powdered uh, mixes. Uh, where you keep all the you know dietary fibers and all the the nutritional and flavor uh, benefits, you know there are huge opportunities for for those types of companies. I think I'm I'm excited and I I haven't seen as much of it in in Europe as I like yet, but we we will see more. And I, I think it's something someone mentioned on a previous episode of. Um, I meet a lot of companies building stuff for 16 year olds who have no money. I meet fewer companies building things for 60 year olds who do. Um, and so technology for that older population, you know, if you look at Korea and Japan in particular, you know, there is an epidemic of loneliness. There is, um, you know, there are huge challenges associated with the, the, the rapidly aging population. There's like obviously extreme longevity in, in Japan. People are living comfortably into their 90s and, and, and even, you know, past 100 fairly, fairly routinely. And, and the birth rate is at, you know, historic lows. And so there are big challenges in, in those markets from a a health, a wellness, and a, a longevity and a quality of life perspective, and so I think there are huge uh, opportunities for companies that are that are tackling those areas. So I think those are kind of two of the um, two of the, the the sectors that I'm that I'm most excited by at the moment. And and then I think you know there's there's lots of other kind of stuff that's 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 sitting around the um, the fringes where I, you know I still think there's people talk about companies or individuals having subscription fatigue. You know if, if I look at there was a famous diagram that someone did a couple of years ago where they looked at Craigslist and then they looked at all of the companies that kind of came in and took out each little section of, uh, you know, houses for sale or cars for rent or, you know, the casual encounters was Tinder or whatever. Um, I think if you look at, you know, the kind of big incumbent CPG, you know, category defining companies like, like Unilever and P&G, you could probably look through their roster and go, hey, there's still a lot of... Um, there's still a lot of clear blue sky for companies to go into and, and disrupt and do interesting things with. And so, you know, I'm pretty, pretty bullish uh, across the board, actually. And education, I think, is your big one. Sorry, I should have said, I think there's huge um, opportunities, uh, particularly in the Asian market. There's a real premium placed on, on education, on language acquisition, on, um, you know, quality of education, et cetera, that, that maybe we've, we've um, don't quite have the same fervor for in, in this part of the world. Um, so with linguists, uh, who I've been on the board of for, for a couple of years now, you know, Japan, Taiwan, China, a lot of those markets are are pretty substantial and pretty exciting for us and, and ones where we see substantial uh, growth and engagement as well. I, I think education as well on 
on the West as well, because since traditional education, no, I feel like is no longer as valued. If you look about the cost for traditional education versus the benefit, and of course, lots of disruption has already happened in education. And lots more to come, right? I mean, if you think about it, it, you know, it's been heavily regulated. It has been slow to adapt and adopt and all of these different things. And, you know, I think there's now a bunch of companies coming in around the side. We see a lot of people pitching as kind of tools for teachers that are looking at a kind of bottoms up, almost Slack style approach for, for adoption. You know, we're seeing lots of people pitching as kind of, you know, machine learning and, and adaptive algorithms for education and, you know, lots of other areas like that. And so you kind of think that idea of, you know, probably the way that you and I went to school where it's like one person teaching 20 or 30 kids and assuming that we all learn in the same way and at the same pace is fundamentally just not the way that the world works. And so I'm really excited to think about what, you know, personalized education might look like and what it might look like if people who are teachers look more like mentors than they do like, you know, the person standing at a whiteboard up the front of the class trying to get everyone to pay attention to the same thing at the same time, which is, uh, uh, you know, can be probably a bit, bit thankless at times. Agree. Uh, so you wrote an article about how raising too much money can kill you. Uh, of course, we're we're living in these times where uh, where capital is is really cheap. I wanted to ask you how you think about good growth versus bad growth in a startup, and you know a little bit into your own diligence process, or rather during the accelerator, maybe as you mentor and are part of these startups' journeys in your co- uh, cohorts, how you think about growth yeah i mean i think you know there's there is a temptation and you, you see companies do this all the time where they'll go they'll get into an accelerator program or they'll raise their pre-seed round on the basis that all of their growth has been organic to date sort of like oh we're growing everyone by using word of mouth we have this huge amount of customer love and customer loyalty and uh, you know all of these things and now we're going to raise three million dollars and we're going to spend 80 percent of it on facebook ads and you kind of go okay well like who's going to, you know, have you segmented your users out into different cohorts? Do you understand kind of where they fit? Do you understand how you're going to target it? Do you understand what the outcomes need to be? Do you understand kind of LTV over CAC, what you need to achieve in order to get to your next round of funding? And in many cases, you kind of get a blank look back. And, and I think people think, oh, well, if I put 80% of my budget into marketing, I just turn on a, a, a you know, a user acquisition hose. Um, and then you kind of start going into, well, actually, there's a difference between acquiring quality users, which is, you know, a lot of what you get from referrals and word of mouth and, and, and the you know, very big difference between them and, you know, some of the users that you will bring in if you suddenly just turn on a kind of spray and pray uh, approach on, on social media. So, uh, or, or any paid media channel for, for, for that point. Um, so I think, you know, like growth is important. I think growth at all costs can be really challenging and, and detrimental to companies. And so I, I, I wrote that post because I was seeing a lot of companies going out and fundraising. They would say, look, we, you know, we need to raise I don't know, let's, let's call it $5 million for, for our, you know, seed extension round or our series A. And I think, you know, occasionally you will see companies and, and this is usually a pretty good thing, you know, fund will go, Hey, what would you do if you had seven and a half instead of, of five, you know, and if the company has a pretty good answer, go, Oh, well, actually we could hire two more engineers. We could open an office here. We could do these things and it would probably give us an extra, you know, five, six months of, of runway and allow us to run a few more experiments. I think that's positive. I think what I saw, and one of the reasons I wrote that post was I was seeing people going, hey, we want to raise $5 million, and there would be funds going, well, what would you do if you were 12? Or what would you do if you were 20? And the, the challenge with that is it looks like from a headline perspective, it's you know, raising $20 million may, to all intents and purposes, look like more of an achievement than, than raising five or, or, or seven and a half. The challenge is, again, the headline number of your valuation of you know, $100 million or you know, $80, $100 million if, if, if you do that um, $20 million raise. The challenge is that 
by the time you get 18 months and probably not even by the time you get 12 months down the line, you have to have the numbers to support that valuation. Because if you go out and start talking about a subsequent round of funding, and we can talk about this in a minute, I don't know necessarily that lots and lots of consumer companies need to do, you know, dozens or hundreds of millions of, of dollars in, in funding rounds. But, you know, regardless if it's 20 million at 100, or if it's, you know, five at, at, at 25, when you really only needed 1 million, um, if you can't get your numbers and your revenue and your projections and, you know, all of the cogs turning in the right way to justify that valuation within 12 to 18 months, then A, it's going to be really difficult for you to raise your next round of funding. B, if you do raise it, it might be flat or a down round. So you're going to end up, you know, being potentially slightly underwater. If you sell the company um, before you you achieve that kind of valuation that, that, that was put on the business, then you may find that as founders, you end up with a, you know, a very, very small chunk of what looks like a, a lot of money because of the way that liquidation preferences kind of worked out. And so I think there's a, a, a huge number of, of challenges that, that come with that. And I think you know, one of the things that I say to, to companies an awful lot is, look, it is obviously very important to grow a business. There's, there's you know, I mean, businesses by their very essence should be things that, you know, grow and scale and make money and become, you know, sustainable and wash their own face and, you know, all of those types of things. However, if you pursue a growth at any costs process, you know, you can just kind of end up shooting yourself in the foot. Entrepreneurs always need to be thinking about as well what this means and what does it look like for the next round when you're fundraising. Yeah. And look, you know, there, there was a great article, I think it was on Hacker Noon a couple of years ago, where they talked about like the economics of VC. And I think for anyone who's thinking about going out and raising a seed round or a series A or a series B or anything else, like understanding what the economics are in terms of what, you know, venture funds look like and, and what return profiles need to look like for venture funds. You know, the, 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 the math is not necessarily in favor of, of certainly what we've seen in the consumer market over the last little while. And so I'm much more in favor of consumer companies that can raise a sensible amount of money, you can grow, can build great brands, can build great mind share, can build kind of great affinity with their customers and, and build a, a real viable brand. And you know what, maybe instead of raising, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars from a more traditional VC route, there's, you know, equity crowdfunding, there's lots of interesting stuff going on now that potentially gives them access to different pools of, of capital that, that come with very different strings attached to, to that more traditional VC route. When do you think a company should optimize for profitability uh, versus optimizing for growth? It's a little bit like the product market fitting, right? You kind of know it when you see it. I think th there there does come a point where you can see over a you know, six, 12 month period, real sustainable growth that is pushing you in the direction of, of a profitable um, business that is still growing at a, at a, at a reasonable kind of, um, at a reasonable pitch. I think when you start to see that, you know, depending on what you want your, your outcome to be, that's the point at which you can start going, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to pull a few more levers on the, um, on the revenue side of things, or maybe we need to look at our cost base, or we need to look at a little bit of margin, or do we need to invest in order to get some additional margin? Um, so I think it's, it's kind of thinking systematically and structurally around kind of when the right time for that is. And, and again, sweat your board, sweat your advisors, sweat your mentors, ask them what they've seen in previous companies that have gone through this, this process. I think, you know, with, with growth, um, you just, you, you have to be careful with kind of what growth actually means. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for consumer companies at the moment is it's not entirely clear what the best distribution channel is anymore. So if you had built a mobile app, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I remember reading an interview with, um, Luis from, from Duolingo. He was like, yeah, every time we got featured on the app, 
store, it would be worth about 2 million downloads in a single day. Um, and because they were so popular, they were getting featured, you know, maybe a, a dozen times a year in the app store. It's like suddenly 24 million users. We've had companies that have been featured on the app store recently where you'd be lucky to get 10,000 downloads in, in a day. And so that as a distribution uh, method is, is maybe not as uh, productive as it was before. Paid media costs, if you're advertising on Instagram or Facebook or any of these different places, have gone up fairly substantially and you can't necessarily rely on that as, as much as you, you might have been in the past. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people looking at, at, at physical retail. It's exciting to see, you know, Showfields and Beta and all of these kind of places bringing startups to the, the high street or, or, or you know, to, to, to shoppers where they are or where they are. But I think sometimes you can kind of, I see a lot of people optimizing for growth without thinking about exactly how they're going to grow. And the default is to go, oh, we'll spend lots of money on advertising. Actually, sometimes it's better to spend it on bus ads than it is to spend it on, you know, digital ads. And so thinking, you know, coherently about that, if you can, you know, I say to companies all the time when they're thinking about raising ventures, like, you know, if you can give me a really good reason and, and a really good plan for how you're going to spend this money that you have thought out and thought through and, you know, have, have at least some degree, I'm not looking for a kind of PhD thesis level of, of peer review, um, but I am looking for some sort of evidence-based reality b behind this kind of ask for X million. Um, and I think you can kind of optimize for growth if you've got all of those ducks in a row. But I think if you're optimizing for growth just so that you can get a kind of nice headline number, um, you know, and, and, and everyone can go and drink a you know, couple of bottles of champagne, you know, that's, that's fine. But you're going to come back in a couple of days later and go, oh, we need to make this a $200 million company in the next 12 months or everyone is getting laid off or fired or, you know, or, or worse. You know, it, it, there has been probably a slightly smaller appetite for consumer investments in Europe than there has been in, in, in the US over the last couple of years, although it is changing. We're certainly seeing more funds putting, putting capital into the, into the sector. But it has meant that a lot of companies have to kind of think, okay, you know, I can't necessarily rely on the fact that there, there will be, you know, money waiting in 18 months, assuming I hit these targets. And so we do see companies think a little bit more about, okay, you know, what, what do we need to get to to make sure that, you know, the unit economics starts to stack up in a way that even if this doesn't go exactly according to plan, we can still you know, either with a small bridge or with, you know, some venture debt or whatever it is, get ourselves to a point where this is a long-term viable business. Um, and so that's been kind of interesting to watch that discipline that it imposes. I think those are all absolutely excellent points. What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? I wish, um, and this, I will include myself in, in the kind of desire to change category here. Um, I wish people were more uh, honest. Um, so, I think, uh, and, and this is something I'm, I'm working on pretty hard myself and, and hopefully will be a lot better at in, in 2020. Like as someone who was a, a founder and who went through the kind of merry-go-round of, of talking to investors in the past, you know, you do get a lot of like, oh, this is great and oh, keep us posted and yeah, we're excited to be involved and, um, you know, kind of all of the things that investors sometimes say instead of saying, no, you know, no, I don't want to invest or I'm definitely not going to invest or, oh, keep us in touch. Like when you get a lead, come back to us, et cetera. Like I, I actually think, um, I think it's, it's, it, you know, we're in a very privileged position to work with, with, with really smart people who have great ideas and, and great energy. And I think sometimes we do them a disservice by just bullshitting them and not saying, hey, I'm not going to invest because actually, you know, all of these numbers look wrong. Your projections are, are way off and, 
you know, what you're thinking about here is, is probably not right. And, and what I think you should do is A, B and C to address it. You know, and I, I think, I don't mean everyone should be kind of a, an, an asshole, but I do think that we could be a lot more constructive in terms of how we deal with companies pitching us. And I, I really respect there's a, a fund here in uh, London called Kindred Capital. Um, and uh, I'm lucky enough to know Russell Buckley, who's, who's one of the partners there. And I've spoken to him about this a bit where, you know, they, they will say no to people in the meeting and they will give them some constructive feedback. Um, and they then send out an NPS survey to kind of say to people, hey, how do you feel about the interaction that you have with us? Uh, and it's overwhelmingly positive, even from people when, you know, you're effectively saying, no, I'm definitely not going to invest in your business. And I think, this, this, and this aren't right, and you know you need to address them. The, the extent to which people really value that is is incredible, and it's something I think we could all stand to be a little bit better at. And of course, no one wants to say no to a deal, uh, and then turn out you know have a turnout that obviously that company turns into like some mega success story. But you know that that's the peril of the game. I, I think what I try and do with companies is is give them at least a little bit of, of constructive feedback. And I say to even to the companies that I say no to, I'm like, look, you know, you can stick me on your, um, you know, mentor or investor update, like I'm happy and I read as many of those as I physically can in any given month. And if I see someone is doing something interesting, you know, I, I run a deal flow email that goes out to 800 VCs and angels around the world that I started when I came back from the US. Like I'll ping it out to people there, you know, because I think having gone through that journey myself and, and you know, met some people who were super helpful and really nice in terms of the, the intros that they gave. I think it's kind of incumbent on us to do that. And I think if we could be just a little bit and not to send like the, uh, the VC starter kit, like how can I help, uh, you know, cliche, but I think if we could be, you know, slightly more helpful for companies, I think one big thing that we could do is say, it's a no, here's one or two reasons why it's a no. And if, you know, maybe it's just a bullet point and here's one thing that I would do differently. Like it would literally take, four or five minutes to fill that in and i think you know no one is that busy particularly if you've had like fair enough if it's a cold email and you know or it's 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 something that you haven't had much engagement with but if you've had a 15 minute meeting with someone i think you could spend another five minutes sending them a note saying honestly it's not for me and and here's a reason or two why yeah i mean i i absolutely agree uh you know i think you know vcs don't want to of course lose that relationship in case later on they want to invest and I'll tell you this, I have a much better relationship in many cases with founders where I've been, and, and I did it as an experiment this year to kind of go, okay, if I am honest and if I do do this and if I do say no, and here's one or two you know, reasons why. In some cases, people didn't you know, react particularly well. And I got one or two kind of angry emails back going, oh, well, you're totally wrong or, or well, way worse, but not for public consumption on a podcast. Um, but I also got lots of people coming back going, hey, I really appreciate that. You know, thank you. I hadn't thought about it in that way before. And in many cases, I still get updates from those companies. And I think that's the kind of unintended consequence that comes out of this, that actually, I think if you're intellectually honest with someone and you, you say no, and here's one or two reasons why, actually kind of what you're doing by doing that is giving them an excuse to get back in touch with you further down the line to go, we've resolved those two issues. We're raising another round. You know, now is this a fit? So I think I've built a really good relationship with quite a few companies that I've, uh, you know, I've initially said no thank you to uh, to them it's almost like you saying the reasons why you won't invest not a challenge per se for the entrepreneur but you know it gives it gives them something to uh, to uh, to think about and then to be able to solve those problems that come back to you it's like the three most powerful words in the english language frequently are i don't know 
<laughs> so if, if you're in a you know a pitching competition or you know you're in a meeting with an investor and they ask you a question instead of you know giving them some kind of bullshit answer or doing the classic thing that founders do of like i'm going to answer the question i wish you'd asked me rather than the one you actually asked me if you say i don't have that information i don't know the answer to that question however can i pop you an email tomorrow to let you know or as soon as i get out of this meeting i'm going to call our cto and get the answer to that scaling architecture question it just gives you an opportunity to get back in touch with that person and i think that's that's often you know often missed by by companies and i think that's you know the same with this i i'm i'm saying here's one or two reasons i might not invest gives the founder either you know they can come back and say hey we've resolved these now what do you think or you know it just hopefully gives them a, a useful data point for the for the future just stay on the subject for a minute. If, if a VC tells a, tells an entrepreneur, we, we want to invest, but we will not be the lead, how should the entrepreneur respond? They, they should do uh, they should do Techstars. So my colleague, uh, uh, David Cohen, who's the, the, the co-founder of Techstars, does an amazing um, fundraising workshop with, with all of the classes where he, he talks about these kind of contingent commitments and, and the challenge of getting people to, to lead. I think it's one of the most popular things that, uh, that we do during the entire program. Um, but I think it, it's, it's trying to understand like, what does that, I think a lot of what happens in, in VC land is people are kind of talking in code. And so when someone says we, we want to invest, but we don't lead, right. It, depending on the fund, some funds just don't lead, right? Like they just don't have the capacity to do it, or they don't want the board seats or they don't want the responsibility or the, you know, energy and bills of, of, of putting the kind of term sheet together. So, you know, some founders get frustrated when they go out and they pitch funds and then the fund goes, well, I'll, I'm, I'd like to be involved, but come back to me when you have a lead. And then when they come and they say, oh, firm X is not, you know, they say we have to wait for a lead. It's like, well, that firm never leads. You know, so I think that there's a research question that, that companies need to do. I think there's a conviction question that, that investors uh, sometimes need to answer. You know, are they kind of going, okay, well, I kind of like this. Um, and I've done some due diligence, but I'm I'm still not sure. So I'm going to kind of outsource my conviction to 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 another fund, and 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 that may be the the case. And and you know sometimes what you have to do in 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 that instance is is spend a bunch of time getting someone to a point where they will will write the term sheet. But I think fundamentally, you know, you've you've got to try and kind of peel the onion a little bit and go like, what does that really mean? You know, what what are they are they you know, do they not want to set the valuation? Do they not want to have that conversation? Do they not want to have to go through the legal hassle? And if that's the case, maybe you can, you know, use one of the, the, the platforms that's out there to kind of, you know, almost write your own term sheet, which we're seeing more and more uh, companies do now. Um, you know, do they not have the capacity to take a board seat? And, and if so, can they nominate someone to do it? So I think, you know, we see it happen all the time. And, and usually it is a sign of, you know, we're not entirely, like we're not 100% there from a conviction perspective but i think one of the things that founders need to do is is understand in whichever market they're in who are the people that will lead who are the people that routinely do it who are the people that take board seats and then who are the funds that kind of come in alongside them who for a variety of reasons you know maybe they're writing 25 100k checks every year and and you know no one wants the responsibility of taking all of those board seats so i think there's a bit of due diligence that, that companies need to do to to you know, kind of get around that. And I think the other thing is like, don't be afraid to ask, you know, I think, um, you know, do, do you in your early on meetings with, with funds kind of go, look, do you, do you typically like to lead rounds? Do you like to co-invest? Do you know, you know, another powerful sentence is if a company says, Hey, we really like this, we'd like to invest, you know, we'll, we'll probably need to see a lead investor. Uh, you know, I would say a hundred times out of a hundred go, 
is there anyone that you like to co-invest in in this type of circumstance and would you be open to making an intro right because you know if they, if they have conviction then they'll go oh okay yeah i'll i'll introduce you to this person um and suddenly you've got a warm intro and a potential lead so i think you've got to kind of work the system a little bit when you uh when you hear that but it, it can be a very a frustrating thing if you hear it from like 10 and you know 15 angels and, and one vc when you're kind of trying to put together a you know a million dollar round and you're just pulling your hair out waiting for that that lead so i think it's it's tough but there are ways to kind of structure your conversations to try and get around it. I completely agree with you. Uh, so what's what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? Uh, I read a book a couple of years ago called, uh, I, I really love uh, food. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's cooking is how I relax in the evenings. And um, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily any good at it, but I certainly enjoy doing it and, and you know, enjoying the, the fruits of my labor. Uh, and I certainly love going out and eating it. So I read a book um, a couple of years ago called The Third Plate by a guy called Dan Barber, who's a, a chef, has a, um, a couple of restaurants in, in New York and, and, and upstate. And you know, kind of just looks at the, the way that um, we have cooked in the past, the way that we kind of industrialized um, farming and, and, and eating and consumption nowadays, and, and then kind of proposes a, 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 a better way forward in terms of a you know, better way to um, engage with the food that we eat, a better way to eat healthily, um, and a, a more sustainable way to eat as well. And I don't necessarily agree with 100% of the things that, that, that he says in the book. I think there is a role for technology to play uh, in there as well, but, but certainly in terms of kind of how I thought about the way that we eat it was um it, from a personal level very inspirational um and then from a business level i, I really like the checklist manifesto uh, i just think it's a it's a great book um i'm not a coo by any stretch of the imagination i'm like the really flaky annoying uh, ceo type character uh, and so anything that helps me put a little bit of uh structure uh, around my life is is a good thing and i just think that the checklist manifesto was just a really fascinating look into how everything from surgeons and pilots and you know business leaders have applied a tiny bit of very simple structure to what they do and have harvested almost unbelievable uh, rewards off the back of it i certainly will have to check out both that's that's really cool what's uh, your most recent investment or as or I'd imagine maybe one company from your cohort that's your most recent cohort that's consumer that you're particularly proud of. I know that I also spoke with Anna Barber at uh, Techstars LA and, you know, all the companies in your cohorts are like your children. But if you were to name one one company in consumer that uh, th- that you'd like to talk about, uh, which one would it be? Uh, so I think to, to any of the companies from the most recent batches that are listening, I do love you all. You know, no parent has a, has an ugly child. But I think the most kind of recent publicly disclosed board seat that I that I took from, from one of the companies was a, a company called Banjo Robinson. Uh, so Banjo Robinson is a globe-trotting cat uh, that travels around the world and sends letters to children to help them learn how to read and write. Uh, and so it sends letters and stickers and maps uh, the kids get the letters, they can write back to, to Banjo, the parents can then personalize uh, the next letter that the, the kid gets from Banjo so it gets uh, into a little bit more detail about the kid's life and you know the level of engagement that you're seeing. I mean, and, and obviously this is an era where lots and lots of children are kind of looking at screens, whether they be uh, big or small, and, and getting them enthused about the idea of reading and writing is not an easy thing. But the again, if we go back to that kind of the passion and the love and the, the consumer love that they saw, you know, they got the highest rating ever um, 
for a consumer product on, on Mumsnet, uh, which was one of the things that, that really kind of got me uh, interested and, and engaged. Um, they get about, you know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of the children uh, actually write back to Banjo. Uh, they did a retail activation a couple of days ago in London where the, you know, kids came in, saw the brand for the first time and were suddenly writing letters going, dear Banjo, I love you. Um, so incredible company with incredible potential in that kind of education space and engagement space, but also more widely given where they are in that kind of four to seven year old age market or age range. Um, real potential to build a, a brand that sits around that as well in a, in a couple of different different formats. So, you know, from a company perspective, I loved it. And then uh, Kate, who's the, um, who's the CEO, is a, is a total force of nature. I, you know, a friend of mine sent me a message and said, hey, I've got this company, you should meet them. It's called Banjo Robinson. It's a cat that writes letters. And I kind of thought, oh, hang on a sec. Like, am I, am I, am I going to take this meeting? And, you know, because he's a good friend, I said, okay, well, I'll do the meeting. I'll do like a 15-minute meeting. Um, and two and a half hours later, I had cleared a bunch of other calls and meetings and was still sitting with Kate going, oh my God, what about this? And oh, we should do this. And, and over a two-week period, I think we ended up sitting for I don't know, six or seven hours just talking about the brand and the company and the organization. And you know, so we were uh, lucky enough to have them go through the, the program um, and to, uh, to invest in, in their round, which, which Collaborative and, and Sesame and um, a couple of other great angels uh, joined in. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're one that I'm, that I'm really excited by. But, um, yeah, certainly anyone who goes to uh, the Techstars London program page on, uh, uh, on techstars.com will find uh, a lot of other companies that I'm equally excited by, but uh, time prevents me from getting uh, all of them out verbally. I will certainly have to check that out. What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? There was a company, uh, and this was quite early in my kind of angel investing career, as it were. Um, so I got introduced to this guy in, in Dubai uh, who was building a service that was quite similar to, to, to Uber, so kind of ride-hailing service. Um, again, similar to where Uber started out in San Francisco uh, uh, at the kind of higher end of the market. Um, and uh, called Kareem, uh, and I tested it out, and, and you know I thought there were some. I mean, it was good in that you know it, it worked and it got you around. There were some UI and some UX issues that, that I kind of thought needed to be addressed, but but spent a bit of time uh, with Mudasser, who was the uh, CEO, and, and uh, Magnus, who was his his co-founder. Um, and for a, a variety of reasons, largely probably my own uh, stupidity, uh, I didn't uh, proceed with it. Um, and they subsequently went on and sold to Uber for, for uh, just north of a uh, billion dollars. And it would have been their pre-seed uh, round that I was getting into. So, um, yeah, I kind of beat myself up about that every so often. But I think, you you know, like anything else, you learn as much from the mistakes as you do from the successes. And I think in that instance, I thought Mudasser was a great founder. I wasn't 100% sure about the business and, and how it would compete against uh, Uber and, and Halo, which was in the market in, in this part of the world at the time. And actually, my conviction should have been in this person is a great founder rather than, ooh, what are, you know, rather than thinking about the problems, I should have thought about the potential. Look, if, if you could, you know, distill what I have to do uh, and, and, and what I try and do on an ongoing basis into a sentence, that's pretty much it. Like it's, it's you know, you're, you're really going all in on the person or the people and your belief in their ability to do something that might just change the world and whether it's the idea they're working on then or you know and i have companies that have gone through programs or that i've invested in before where it hasn't worked out and now they you know in some cases work out of my office i'm kind of like okay well when the next you know 
maybe that wasn't the business. Maybe the next one will be. And if it's not that one, then it's the next one. And, and hopefully I'll have the opportunity to continue to, you know, participate and support them and, and, and go along for the, the journey because it is, you know, I, I think I've said it before, it's a, it is a privilege to get to work with really smart people working on, you know, brilliant ideas and, and to go on the journey with them. And to, you know, I joke that the, I have the, you know, and I do to a certain extent have one of the best jobs in the world. And that kind of forces me to buy books all the time so that I sound smart enough when I'm talking to these vendors. Uh, but it's like an ongoing educational process that, that never ends. And, um, you know, it is, it is just, I'm, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to, uh, to do it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty good fun. What's one piece of advice you have for founders of consumer companies? I think it's t- talk to people. So the biggest mistake that I see companies make is, is assuming that their idea is so amazing that if they tell anyone else what it is, that person is immediately going to kind of steal their ball, run with it and start the company themselves. Um, and I think the reality is like everyone has their own, you know, hundred billion dollar idea sitting somewhere in, in their head. And, um, you know, they're, they're all varying degrees of, of good, bad and different and, and, and maybe even awful. So I think the more that you kind of talk to people, whether they be investors or mentors or advisors or other founders or, you know, anyone that you can, you know, potential customers, um, the, the better informed it's going to make you, the better it's going to be overall. You know, I remember uh, I met uh, Louise, who's the CEO of a company called Yoller, which is a, a social planning app that gets people together fast. And uh, I met her at South by Southwest, I think three or four years ago. Um, and back then, the, the app was basically a series of, of post-it notes, colored post-it notes that, that she moved around in a, in a pitch, which was one of the most mesmerizing things I've, I've ever seen because it was so well done and she was so passionate about the product. But she spent that entire event and a, a sequence of one subsequent to that just talking to people about social planning apps they'd used before, what had worked, what hadn't, why, you know, and, and did a, an almost, you know, unbelievable level of, of customer discovery. And I think if she hadn't done that, she would have built a, a, a lesser product. But because she did, she had a huge number of supporters. She had a huge number of people rolling in behind her. She had a huge amount of people contributing ideas and, and guidance and, and capital and more to the to the business. And I think you just have to put yourself out there. And sometimes it's a, you know, somebody who's a natural introvert. It's not the easiest thing to do, but I think you, you have to force yourself and, and have those conversations because otherwise you'll end up building a company that's good for you, but for maybe no one else. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great, great point and a great piece of advice. Eamon, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show and this has been a great conversation. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Eamon on and I really appreciate him sharing his insights. That was a lot of fun and I, I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're enjoying these episodes, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as that increases our exposure, that would be simply terrific. If you'd like to also follow me along behind the scenes, you can follow me at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com.